You can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, and the text is printed along in the bulletin also for you. Pentecost um, is the, the scene that we're approaching uh, today. We've started going through Acts recently, and we're, um, we're hitting the day that I think is, uh, is kind of the key day. It's like the watershed moment for the book of Acts, right? Uh, everything flows out of this. Um, from Acts chapter 2 onward, um, the church has begun and the disciples are changed. And so Pentecost uh, was for really a lot of reasons a big day in the history of the world. Uh, And there's so much that happens here in Acts 2 that um, uh, we're going to take two weeks to look at it and we're really not going to talk about everything that's in there. Um, You could spend a lot more time than two weeks on it. Uh, This week, we're, we're looking at uh, the first 21 verses. We'll look at the events that took place on that day. And we'll look at the beginning of Peter's explanation of those events. And next week, we'll, we'll finish with Peter's explanation, and we'll see what the results were of uh, all of it, of that day. And so um, let's pray, and then we'll read the passage. <coughs> Lord Jesus, you have um, sent your spirit into the world to call a people out of darkness and into the kingdom of your light and the kingdom of your love. And we uh, here 2,000 years removed from this and on the other side of the world from where these events took place and totally different culture and uh, setting in history, we we have been the recipients of this day, this Pentecost. And so we pray that as we come to your word this morning, you would help us to understand what that means, that you would uh, renew our minds the way we think about your Holy Spirit who uh, lives among us and who dwells in us. And we pray that as you do this, um, you would change us more and more into your likeness so that as we go about our lives we would glorify your name by the power of your spirit and, uh, and through your word, we ask in your name. Amen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us In his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. 
Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So, just a little background. Pentecost. I, I didn't even know this until I started studying for this this week. What does the word Pentecost mean? We all know that it refers to this event, right? But <clears throat> what does it mean? Well, the, the word is actually Greek for the number 50. Um, and it, it was the Jewish festival. Uh, all these, these people, these, these Jews from different parts of the Mediterranean world and, and um, even east of uh, Judea, they... They all came together for certain festivals, right, in Jerusalem. A few times a year, everybody would come, and they would worship, and they would partake of these feasts, and they'd offer sacrifices. And, um, and this was one of those times. Pentecost was another name for the Feast of Weeks, or um, the Feast of the Harvest, or the Feast of First Fruits. And it's called, actually, the Feast of Weeks um, in the Old Testament, because it's, this is a little tricky, just uh, calculating the way that Hebrews did. It was a week of weeks, right? It was seven weeks after Passover. So you'd have Passover, <clears throat> and then you'd have uh, seven times seven, a week of weeks, days. You know, So 49 days, and then the next day, the 50th day, you would have this celebration, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of the Harvest. And it was one of three annual... Um, Thanksgiving-type festivals. Right? We have Thanksgiving once a year. Uh, they had it like three times a year. <clears throat> and uh, it included special grain and drink offerings. You know, they would make bread, and they would wave the bread, <laughs> and I guess maybe they would burn the bread and drinks and oil, and, um, and then they would sacrifice lambs and maybe a bull or something. I don't, I don't remember all the details, but uh, there would be animal sacrifices and grain and drink offerings. And on this day, um, which would have been on a Sunday, all uh, 120 of Jesus' disciples were together, possibly in the same house where they had celebrated uh, the Passover. And it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered uh, together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So um, it was sudden, right? It came upon them. uh, They knew they were to expect something, right? Jesus had been preparing his disciples for this. 
he had made several promises to his disciples um, that he was going to send his spirit to them. Let me actually read some of those from John's gospel. In John 14, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then in John 15, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. And then in John 16, It's to your advantage that I go away. The disciples wouldn't have thought that was true. For Jesus to go away from them uh, into heaven and not be present with them physically uh, seemed like a great disadvantage to them. But he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So these are the promises that we have from him in the Gospels. And then at the beginning of the book of Acts, in chapter 1, we have uh, another promise that he's kind of reiterating this to his disciples. He says, it's the resurrected Christ. He's died. He's, He's come back to life. He's been with his disciples teaching them. And he says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the disciples had been prepared for something, right? (laughs) Who knows what that was going to look like? Uh, But suddenly this happens. At Pentecost, with the disciples waiting as they were told, the Spirit came upon them suddenly with a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. Uh, Apparently, the effects of the wind were limited to just the sound of it, right? They weren't buffeted around inside the room. The whole house wasn't shaken by the sound. It was a sound. But um, have you ever been in a windstorm? Uh, I'm talking about the kind where it's actually hard to stay on your feet. Um, Other than the physical effect of it pushing on you, uh, it is deafeningly loud, right? If you want to experience something like that, go up to the, the Columbia Gorge, head up to Crown Point on a windy day, 100-mile-an-hour winds just buffeting the top of the gorge there. It's, it's pretty amazing. But um, such wind is deafeningly loud, and the disciples heard this sound but apparently didn't feel anything. So this is very strange. This is a supernatural occurrence, right? Now, the, the Hebrew, uh, the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew and um, the New Testament in the Greek language. And so the Hebrew and Greek words for wind are actually the same as or very similar to the words for spirit. And um, oftentimes when you see the word wind or you see the word breath in the Bible, there's a word play with the work of the spirit. The work of the spirit or wind or breath um, is often associated with new creation or new life. Like when God formed Adam from the dust of the ground in Genesis chapter 2 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, it says. Or when Ezekiel was to prophesy over a valley of dry bones, long dead people. And he was to say, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Or when Jesus said to Nicodemus uh, in John chapter 3, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the sound of a powerful wind filling the house, the mighty life-giving spirit um, is to represent that, that, that powerful work of his in giving life and in creating new life where there was none before. And then you've got the imagery of the, the divided tongues as of fire. It's not fire, it's as of fire. And, um, uh, and it's divided, right? These, these, these flames are, are resting on each person in the room and they're not burning down the house. It's, uh, it's, it's as if they're, it's resting on their heads. Fire throughout the Bible is symbolic of the holy presence of God. Right? Think of Exodus chapter 3, Moses, the burning bush, right? The bush that seems to be on fire, but it's not burning. It's not uh, turning into ash. Uh, It's the presence of God. It's the holy presence of God. And fire is also symbolic of the purification that's necessary to stand in God's presence. And of consuming judgment. And of light. The light of revelation. So Moses uh, at the burning bush stood in God's presence. A pillar of fire led the Israelites through the wilderness Flashes of fire lit up the sky around Mount Sinai when the law was revealed to Moses. Isaiah had a fiery coal touched to his lips to purify him from sin and to prepare him to speak God's word. And so the the holy presence of God himself at Pentecost rests on each of the disciples in the, the New Testament um, speaks of God as a consuming fire. Right? I think it's Hebrews 13. And it refers to his righteous judgment. When the fire of God comes upon you, either you're burnt up or you're purified so that God can dwell in you. Right? And the only way that God could come to his people and dwell in them was for them to survive the fires of judgment, which Jesus bore for all those who trust in him. So, here the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of creation and new life, the Spirit of Christ himself came and filled his disciples and constituted them as the temple of God, the place where the holy presence of God dwells, the temple of God on earth. And he gave them spiritual life as the body of Christ. As a spirit fills a body and gives it life, that's how the Holy Spirit fills his people as the body of Christ. This is an event that is on par 
with the incarnation of Christ, his birth, his virgin birth. It's on par with the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. This was a mighty act of God in the history of redemption. And once God did it, the entire world was changed. And so there's a sense in which uh, this was like a once-for-all thing, right? And as if this weren't remarkable enough, uh, the Spirit of God coming and, and God dwelling with his people, here's something quite remarkable. This didn't just happen to the 12 apostles, right? The specially selected few. Out of the 120 that were following Jesus, There were these 12 who were to constitute kind of the core, be given authority to teach God's uh, will and God's revelation. This didn't just happen to them. It happened to all Jesus' disciples. And that includes um, men and women, young and old, uh, slave and free. And they all, the text says, began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them, they all began to prophesy, to tell of God's wondrous deeds in foreign languages that they had not learned. Numbers 11 uh, tells us that Moses had wished that all God's people would prophesy, would proclaim what God has done and what God has revealed. And here, Moses' wish comes true. All God's people become prophets in a miraculous work of the Spirit. And the audience is no longer limited to national Israel, right? Those who dwell in Israel. Continuing on in chapter, uh, in in verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And you've got a list of all these places where these people had come from. These were the Jews who had been dispersed, um, sent out into all the nations through persecution and, and oppression, uh, pockets of and communities of Jews living in all these other nations. <clears throat> and... Um, it says, in picking up in verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So Jews and proselytes, Gentile converts to Judaism, from every nation under heaven, and technically this is not true, right? This list is not... Um, Uh, take into consideration every geographical uh, place and and nation uh, in the world, right? Not even all the nations that were known to them at the time. This is a representative, right? The list would be really long (laughs) if they were going to list all of them. But these people were from every nation under heaven, everywhere in the world where there were Jewish communities and these Jews had gathered for this Thanksgiving festival. When the Spirit came upon Jesus' disciples in such a noticeable way, People were amazed, the text says, astonished, perplexed, bewildered. 
confused. The disciples had begun prophesying in dialects, literally, it's, it's dialects, uh, that were native to each of those who were visiting from many nations. And that really is incredible and amazing. Uh, wouldn't that be just awesome <laughs> to, to be able to instantly communicate with people uh, from a, an entirely different culture and language? Um, that's incredible. But why this long list of nations, right? We skipped over it the second time. I didn't want to read it all. <laughs> Is it really necessary? I mean, I think usually when we encounter a list like this in the Bible, we have a tendency to tune out or get bored or skim quickly through it as we did and, uh, and get to the next part, right? But Luke includes this list for um, actually a very interesting reason. These lists show up all over the place in the Old Testament, but there's uh, one in particular that is probably relevant to this text, and it's in Genesis chapter 10. And um, before we uh, get to Genesis 10, let's actually back up a little bit to Genesis chapter 6. In um, in Genesis 6, verse 5, uh, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? And so you know the story. God decided to blot out humanity from the face of the earth. He told Noah, you build an ark. You build a really big boat. It's the, the first animal shelter, right? And it's meant to rescue Noah's family from the disaster that God's bringing upon the face of the earth when he sends the flood. Genesis chapter 7, God sends the flood And everyone dies except for those on the ark. Genesis 8, God made a wind to blow over the waters, and the waters subsided, and he promised never again to destroy the world by flood. Genesis chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth. to to spread out and cover the earth. And in Genesis 10, we come to the list. And it says, It's the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in Genesis uh, 10, verse 32, after this list, it says, and there are 70 or 72 nations that are listed there. It says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So bear, bear with me if this is just geeky or boring or whatever. I'm getting there, right? <laughs> Commentators call this uh, list in Genesis 10 the table of the nations, right? And Luke, in his selective recording of the nations that are represented at Pentecost actually calls to mind this table of nations. The places that Luke lists here falls under the divisions of the sons of Noah. These ones are from Shem, and these ones are from Ham, and these ones are from Japheth. Right? Why does Luke do that? In Genesis 10, with the table of the nations, um, at the end of it, you know, God has destroyed the world, uh, here is Noah, and the, the, the reset button has been hit, right? 
and things are going to be good, right? The reader might think things are going to be great. Finally, people are going to begin to obey God's commands. They're going to go forth and multiply and spread abroad on the earth. But what happens in in chapter 11? In the very next verse, let's read some of that. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. When the nations shared one language and the same words, what did they do? They united in rebellion against God, in self-exaltation. They disobeyed God's command to spread out and to fill all the earth. Their unity was based on a shared language, and shared goals that revolted against God and against his will. And so God cursed them. He confused their language. And he forcibly dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And here at Pentecost, God reverses that curse. He confused them by making his people speak in different languages that were intelligible to everybody who was there. He united his people by giving them his spirit, by making them the one body of Christ on earth. David Peterson, the commentator, says, For one brief moment in time, the divisions in humanity expressed through language difference were overcome. These divisions are presented in Genesis as the judgment of God. What happened on the day of Pentecost suggests that God's curse has been removed. God was expressing his ultimate intention to unite people from every tribe and language and people and nation under the rule of his son. He didn't erase the distinction in languages, right? He didn't Recombine all the languages into one. He enabled the gathering of people from every tribe and tongue 
and people and nation, bringing about unity in diversity. And John Stott says that um, nothing could have demonstrated more clearly than this the multiracial, multinational, multilingual nature of the kingdom of Christ. At Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ. At Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas in Jerusalem, heaven humbly descended to earth. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall see visions, and your, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, uh, Peter started the first Christian sermon with a joke. <laughs> right? um, these guys are drunk. They're filled with sweet new wine. Oh, come on. It's only 9 a.m. That's not it, right? Um, <clears throat> total side note, uh, humor can be disarming. Peter quotes from Joel uh, chapter 2, from which we read in our Old Testament reading, And the basic gist of this quote is the universality of God's salvation, right? God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, all kinds of people regardless of gender or age or class would become his mouthpieces. They would prophesy, right? And visions and dreams, they're subsumed under this concept of prophesying. All kinds of people will prophesy. All kinds of people will become God's witnesses, will proclaim the revelation of his salvation through his Messiah, Jesus. And these last days would be inaugurated by cosmic wonders. You know, the kind that happened when Jesus died on the cross. Darkness drew over the land for three hours. The sun's light failed. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and the dead were raised to life. The greatest wonder of these, of course, being the willingness of the Son of God to shed his blood and die for your sins. The last days... 
the age of the kingdom of the Messiah began with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And the completion of these, day, these last days will be accompanied by further cosmic signs and wonders, the kind that will happen when Jesus returns. The heavens will split open, and the Lord will descend. All the dead will be raised. Everyone who ever lived will stand before him for his judgment. The earth will be consumed with a purifying fire, and all things will be made new and everlasting. The last days will end with the wedding supper of the Lamb, and then comes the eternal beginning. And during these last days, in between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus is the Lord of our salvation, and his salvation is extended to all the nations under heaven, all the nations of the earth. At Pentecost, the ascended Lord Jesus poured out his spirit on all flesh, sent his spirit as a deluge on the whole world. And up until this point in history, it was not so, right? It was as if an ocean of God's grace had been mostly locked up in Israel as if by a great dam. And filling up behind that dam was the inexhaustible love of God, promise after promise, patience and deliverance after deliverance. Sometimes the ocean of God's grace would slosh out over the side and a Gentile would hear and would be blessed. And then God came to earth in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, and the ocean of grace got fuller. And he performed many miracles and taught about the kingdom, and it got fuller. And he served us, and he died for us to forgive us. And he came back to life for us to bring us new life. And he stepped into the royal courts of heaven for us to prepare a home for us. And the ocean of grace was brimming full. And he sat down on his throne and he asked his father and he poured out his spirit on all flesh. And the dam broke. And the ocean of grace flooded into all the nations of the earth. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. <clears throat> to be continued. <laughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we rely entirely on your grace. We don't deserve your favor. We deserve to be wiped out um, as in the days of Noah with a great flood that overcomes the whole earth. And instead of giving us what we deserve, uh, you overcome the whole earth with the great flood of your mercy and your grace poured out on all flesh by your spirit. And your spirit teaches us about Jesus and fills our hearts with longings, longings of love for you and longings to be like you 
Lord Jesus. And your spirit, O Lord, fills us with power to walk in this world as those who bear your name, to walk as those uh, who humbly are able to confess their sins and confess faith and trust in you as our Savior, and those who even have the power and the boldness given by your Spirit to proclaim you, your person and your work, your good grace to us, uh, even in the face of all adversity and trial and persecution. And so we thank you for your Spirit who's been poured out on us and everything that that means. Pray that you would teach us more and more through your word about your presence in us, about your purification of us, and about the judgment that certainly comes on uh, all people at the end of time. Help us to prepare for that by being your witnesses in this world. We pray in your name. Amen.